Live to see it, friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At The World Transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us, and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and I'm pleased to present part two of our interview with Jay Stores Hall. He has the first word here, so take it away, Josh. Have you ever heard of a, an organism that's sometimes referred to as Conan the Bacterian? <laughs> I never have, no. No. Uh, okay, there's a, there's a uh, bacillus. Um, known as radiodurans, and it can live in a, uh, a radiation field that's so intense that it degrades uh, solid aluminum, okay? Wow. And yet it wow. happily lives, okay? And the reason is that it's a, a living organism, and it has, you know, uh, completely fourfold strands of DNA and, and gazillions of... Uh, uh, error-checking and correcting mechanisms for all its little internal machines that, you know, that go into any cell. But, you know, it spends about half of its energy uh, just fixing itself constantly. Right. Well, it, with now technology, we can do the same thing. Um, we can build cell repair machines. Uh, we can do uh, just build things again as fast as the, the radiation can degrade them. We can uh, build completely microscopic particle accelerators and uh, high electric and magnetic field generators and all the sort of stuff that, um, you know, you can do nowadays in, in the labs, but they cost millions of dollars. So, so with nanotechnology, we can, we can solve the safety issues and we can, and we can move ahead, right, with some of the, I, I guess, yeah. trickier, just, just kind of technological issues that surround doing things like nuclear fusion. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not really a big fusion fan right now. And the major reason is that um, nobody really knows how to do it. There are a few uh, projects out there that uh, show some promise. But, I mean, the, the, the ITER uh, reactor that they're building in Europe with our money and lots of other people's money um, about half the fusion, bu- fusion budget of the United States goes to this international project. Um, that, that's a machine that's, that's bigger than the entirety of Disneyland. I mean, it's huge. It's right. gigantic. Um, and so if they ever actually manage to get it working, which they don't expect to before 2030, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the cost of the power it ever produces uh, – if you actually count the cost of what it took to build it, it's going to be enormous. You're not going to get cheap power of that thing no matter what. Um, and it's because fusion is actually very, very, very hard to do with uh, anything vaguely approaching current technology. Um, I would say wait until we have uh, you know, a, a century of experience in all the other forms of uh, nuclear energy. I mean, by far the, the easiest thing to uh, put to get power out of is tritium. It's you know the stuff that they actually do use in um, glowing, glow, glowing dial watches and, and, and that sort of thing. 
the 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 beta rays that it puts out are um, essentially uh, so weak that they get stopped by air, they get stopped by a piece of paper, they get stopped by the dead layer of cells on the on the outside of your skin. I mean, so you can you can expose yourself to these and and you will receive no significant physiological effects unless you ingest it, at which point, you know, you, should, you shouldn't be doing that. But um, it's uh, uh, a very mild uh, storage of energy in a, in a nuclear form, and it just decomposes down into helium-3. So it's, a, um, it, it's completely clean as, as far as those things are concerned. It has a half-life of about 12 years, and um, the other thing is the amount of energy in a um, uh, in the in the tritium is such that um, if your flying car had a um, one ton uh, gas tank of jet fuel, you could replace it with a two ounce tank of uh, water where the, the hydrogens had been substituted by tritium. Right. Okay, that's, that's how much energy is. And, and that's a very weak form of nuclear power. Um, so let's see if we can handle that first. Um, they, the other thing about uh, a beta emitter like tritium is that what comes out of it is just an energetic electron. It's electricity. And so all you have to do is, with your nanotech, build something to uh, capture that and feed it into a wire. Now, the fact is that, that they were able to do that not with complete uh, efficiency, but do it to the point where it was useful in the 70s. They wow. had this thing called the beta cell um, that was a, a nuclear-powered battery that they would implant to power your pacemaker and leave it in for 10 years. Right. And it was so safe that they would stick it in there right next to your heart. So basically... We need a we, we need a uh, mindset change in addition to just taking advantage of the technology that's available, and that one is probably going to be harder actually than the technologies. Maybe the technologies will help drive the mindset, right? If we if we start to see capabilities that nanotechnology can provide for us uh, in terms of energy, maybe we start to loosen up on some of that. Just I mean, it sounds like just absolute silliness around you know what the what the rules are. Do you do, do you yeah. have any uh, no, optimism around that? that? Um, I mean, the one the one thing I would add to that is simply that people don't get scared of stuff that they have a lot of experience with and they know to be safe, and they do get scared of anything they don't have experience of. Right. Uh, I mean, the classic case is that kids from cities are, are scared of snakes and kids that grew up on farms, you know, handle them all the time and, and they know good snakes from bad snakes and all that sort of stuff. Well, right. the same thing is true of technology. Um, and so if you look around all the areas of technology where um, people are raising these horror stories and, and, and making lots of money and selling books and uh, yeah, having all these activist organizations and all this sort of stuff, they um, they mostly deal in things that people don't have experience of or right. are not able to uh, judge the ultimate uh, result of you know what it is that they're trying to be scared about. Um, whereas if you oh here's a, here's a classic example. Uh, there were these two Jane Fonda films. 
uh, that came out in, I think, the 70s. And one of them was called the China Syndrome. And it was about nuclear reactors and it was about, you know, how horrible they were going to be. And, oh, yeah. And so Michael forth. Douglas. Okay. Yep. Well, yep. there was another um, Jane Fonda movie uh, that was think, I think it was called Nine to Five. But it was, a, it was about office stuff. Right. And it was supposed to be just as great a horror story um, about, uh, you know, the inequities of the office or some other such thing. And, right. As the, and, you know, it was produced by the same kind of people and, and you know, starring the same kind of people and, and, and written with essentially the same intent. Of course, it was a complete flop as far as scaring anybody was concerned because everybody knew about the office and they knew what it was like. And, you know, when they, uh, uh, they take the boss and... Um, kidnap him and uh, uh, attach him to a uh, uh, garage door opener and yank him around his, uh, uh, his apartment, everybody just laughs. Right, right. Okay, because they know that stuff. And so what's actually going to help uh, people uh, understand and not be afraid of uh, new technologies is experience. Get them out there somehow or other and allow people to be using them. I mean, just, you know, make a beta cell. Um, you know, here's a battery for your cell phone that doesn't go dead for 10 years. Um, we could be building those right now. And uh, the only reason that we, we aren't is because there's no good source of, of tritium because it needs to be produced in, in nuclear reactors. Right. Well, we got we to gotta, we gotta get back on that. Uh, you know, to, 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 uh, to paraphrase the name of your of your chapter, we just got to get back on the Henry Adams curve. We got to we got to get the uh, energy flowing again because I, I like the way you describe the world we'd be living in if we if we would uh, turn that corner. So if the mindset has to change, it has to. I, I like the, I, I do like the idea of you know maybe having people start to see the see the benefits if even a few little things like that could slip in, right? A, the old uh, um, <laughs> phone phone that charge that lasts a year. But you know right. more to the point. With everyone so worried about climate change, you would think that there would be a huge move in this direction. If if the uh, if the rhetoric around climate change is serious, you know, if if the belief is that we're you know facing this you know extinction level crisis, then all kinds of new research should be going on around nuclear energy, and we should be moving as fast as, as, as possible as we can towards it. And I know we're not. You would think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> but I mean, there's, a, there's a vast disconnect there. Yeah. Um, and, um, I mean, basically I think people are saying, um, you know, that once the, once the story falls apart, um, the reason that the, the uh, uh, alarmists are, are going to be found not to have gotten any traction is here was this obvious solution as far as you know the, a, a vast proportion of the world's energy could be made completely carbon free and they not only turned up their noses at it but they actively campaigned against it right right you know um it it, it it's it, it, it i i guess it's got you know nucle- nuclear power has cooties going all the way back to the 70s right because of the yeah. uh be, be, for, for the reasons well, that you stated. A, it's been of uh, some interest to me to try and figure out exactly how and why and so forth that was. And one thing was that um, a nuclear weapon is, in fact, a, a pretty horrible sort of thing. And if we were to have a, a general nuclear exchange, the uh, amount of uh, fallout that got generated would 
actually be a significant uh, threat to uh, life on Earth and civilization and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and since 1950, there have been uh, there's there's a whole industry of subgenre of uh, of science fiction and and, and other uh, horror stories about you know how everybody gets killed off in the nuclear war and all that sort of stuff. Um, so the fact is that that is based on uh, a real actual scientific um, phenomenon. Right. That's the difference between uh, eating a candy bar and being shot with a gun. I mean, right. they're both oxidation. But um, <laughs> the uh, and 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 the the people who were you know making so much money and prestige and and, uh, and getting so much attention off of telling these stories sort of forgot to tell everybody that nuclear power and nuclear weapons were two completely different things right. and uh, and that you know it, it it in the in the wake of Three Mile Island you know the, the accident where there was a meltdown in a Harrisburg reactor. Um, there was a whole bunch of research done, and one of the things that they discovered was in polls that the um, uh, that two-thirds of the American population actually believed that a nuclear reactor, as used to generate power, could explode like an atom bomb. Right, right. And that uh, that if it had been, uh, um, you know, uh, just a little, if we'd been just a little less lucky, um, the uh, Three Mile Island would have gone off and uh, inundated the entire East Coast with uh, uh, fallout and all that sort of stuff. And uh, of course, it's completely untrue. That there's no, uh, there's not even a, uh, uh, a faint possibility that that something like that could happen right which but is not to say bad things can't happen we had chernobyl can. right you know the thing happened in japan well, i mean chernobyl, chernobyl is a completely different story yeah um but the uh but the thing is that in the wake of through malala it turns out that the um the alarmists about nuclear power had been so successful that two-thirds of the people believed this completely ridiculous story okay yeah. so that's the, that's the bottom line yeah, and yeah. and the fact is, if you want to talk about Chernobyl, they they did the same thing. I mean, how many people were killed at Chernobyl? I don't know. About forty-five. Okay. Okay, it was not a world-ending cataclysm. Guess what else? Chernobyl was specifically built by the Russians to breed plutonium. It was a uh, a carbon moderator reactor uh, that that specifically bred uranium to plutonium for use in atom bombs, and they then tacked on uh, a power generation thing uh, so as to, uh, you know, make a, make a, a false front for it and uh, um, pretend it was, you know, in the, in the, in the aid of uh, uh, helping the people and all that sort of stuff. But it was, it was basically a military machine, and then what actually happened was that the uh, operators did this incredibly stupid thing, um, uh, running some, uh, as far as I understand, uh, non-authorized experiment on the reactor and doing something nobody with any sense would ever actually do. And they made it catch fire. And the, um, the 
uh, graphite blocks that were the moderator just caught fire. And it was the smoke from the fire that carried the, the radioactivity around. It was not anything like anything at all like an actual nuclear explosion. Huh, how about that? Well, insider stuff on, uh, on Chernobyl. But you know what, I, I, think the, uh, I think the solution for getting, you know, turning the public around on nuclear power is, is the millennials. We've got to get them excited about it, right? They, they seem to be willing to give a look to ideas that have ostensibly been discredited from the past, right? Economic models yeah. and things like that. So um, I, I think, I think we've got to work on, uh, we've got to work on getting them excited. Let, let them think that it's something that the baby boomers have told them they can't have. Right? <laughs> well, I think that's yeah. exactly right. I mean, I think yeah. the baby boomers themselves are, are a case of this phenomenon where uh, a whole generation will like to say, um, you know, our, our parents were idiots. And we know better than them, and right. we'll be better and, and, and do all this, all this cool stuff that they were telling us not to do. And uh, the, the baby boomers absolutely did that. So, um, you know, now it's their turn to have it done to them. Exactly. So I, that, I think that's how we get back on the curve. We need, a, we need a big marketing campaign, a big PR campaign for nuclear power that's well, aimed well, you know, think, right at them, Instagram. Right? Think Go about ahead, it Steve, this way. It, in, in the early 60s, uh, we, were, we were launching a nuclear submarine on, at the rate of uh, approximately one a month. And, uh, you know, if we were just, you know, we, we wouldn't even have to build the whole sub. We're just talking the, uh, <laughs> the reactors, right? If right. we were just yeah. building reactors uh, the size of the, of the reactors in those subs and putting them out at a rate of one a, one a month. I, I've heard the, you know, I actually have read how long it would take for us to be powering the entire nation that way, and I think it's inside of like something like two or three years. Wow. Uh, it's, it, I mean, if real quick. we just kept producing them at that rate, huh? Yeah, real wow. quick. It's, um, um, and, and, and that's, and, and it's just, you know, it, we just backed away from it completely because of, of the fear associated with it. So, well, that's and, why, you know what, if we can turn it around, we can turn it around fast, right? That's the yeah. point. You know, if we can, if, if we can just ramp back up to it, there's all that power to be had. Um, I, I'm thinking, let's just start handing out copies of Visions for a World Transformed to every millennial you know, and uh, we'll turn them right to, Josh, we're going to turn them right to your chapter, okay? We're gonna, <laughs> we're going to get these kids well, back on the that, Henry that, Adams curve. In anticipation of this interview, I went back and read my chapter, and I must say, wow, that was a great chapter. <laughs> I, I think so. It's exciting. I can't, let, let me tell you, folks, everybody, if you don't have the book already, read it. This is exciting stuff. I, I came out of that going, yes. And I, I really think that, uh, that, that people need to look at this uh, situation this way. They need to think about it in these terms because the opportunity is there. We, we just, you know, we, we need to find the, the motivation and the, I, I don't know what it, what it is, kind of the wherewithal to, to start taking steps in that direction. Oh, All right. Well, you know, we're, we're about out of time, uh, but we had, we had several other things we wanted to get into with you, Josh, about uh, we wanted to talk about nanotech and we wanted to talk about AI since you're kind of, you know, a known uh, authority on both of those subjects. We talked a little bit about the relationship between nanotechnology and nuclear power. Can you give us any just a quick, quick, quick uh, synopsis on what you see happening with nanotechnology? Is it on track? Is it happening at the, at the rate you thought it was going to or where are we with nanotechnology? I, ha I haven't really kept up with the stuff they call nanotechnology, which, as you were talking about, was the films and the powders and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, there is a significant amount of work nowadays 
in what you might call um, applied uh, molecular biology, where people are beginning to use some of the uh, um, molecular machines from inside of a cell to do interesting things. And um, occasionally it rises to the level of usefulness, and, and so people could actually start making some money for it. From yeah, it. we talked uh, a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, I guess now, about the Nobel Prize that was granted last year for the developers of molecular machinery. And in effect, that molecular machinery was based on biotechnology, was it not? Yeah, but the, um, the key thing is that um, there is a, a pathway, which was in fact the original pathway. This is what uh, um, Feynman proposed in the, in the famous book, not book, in, in his talk, Plain of Room at the Bottom. And um, he said, okay, let's just take an ordinary machine shop and, you know, rig it out to the point that you can use it to build a, a whole other machine shop like itself, only smaller. Right. And then you just keep doing that until you get down to the molecular size. And as far as I know, nobody, nobody has ever even tried that. And right. it's just sitting there waiting for somebody to try. Um, and I think that uh, at some point, um, one of the things that's going on is uh, the rapidly increasing capabilities of uh, 3D printers. Right. And one of the, one of the key points, uh, the phases of, of nanotechnology, is that it is in many cases based on additive manufacturing, which is, you know, just 3D printing. Right. Um, so uh, there is a an open evolutionary path from our current 3D printing to uh, something that gets awfully close to nanotech. Um, and the other thing is that once you get close, uh, you can attack it from both ends. You can take the, the uh, cylinder-based molecular machines that you have. You can take the uh, um, uh, metal-based machines that you've been working with in the, in the lab and so forth and in the, in the shop, and uh, as soon as they can kind of talk to each other, then you've essentially done it. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know of a major well-funded project uh, to do that, and, and I won't say there should be one. I should say, I'll say there should be 100. Um, right. Because this is, this is one of the key things that's keeping us from all of the things that, that we think we know how to do uh, over the coming century and to solve um, a, an enormous swath of things that people consider problems uh, if only they didn't know uh, what, what we could actually have been doing about them. Right, right. Well, I, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely room for a lot more to be done in that area. It seems like I love I love the idea of somebody do, actually trying to do what what Feynman described. And I know in um, Radical Abundance, Care Drexler's book from a few years ago, he talks about where that all kind of breaks down. Right, eventually you get so small you're dealing with molecules and they just don't move like classical Newtonian objects do, and it and it won't work. And, and I read that and I said, okay, well, good. Well, let's get as close as we possibly can with that model, right? And then. <laughs> 
because yeah, <laughs> that should make us some really small stuff, and then uh, and you know then, then we'll figure out the rest of nanotech there, or maybe the three D printers will get us there, as you as you said. What about artificial intelligence? Well, I, think, I think the reason oh, that I point about point out three D printers is that right now that's where the money is. And pe- there are people right. working on improving them and improving in particular uh, the precision and the finish and, and, and all that sort of stuff that they can that they can produce. Um, and of course the other side of that is is improving the range of materials that they're capable of producing. Uh, right. So the and I mean basically the 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 state of the art there where you have a um, a healthy market, and therefore a lot of investment and improvement, um, is phenomenal. So, once and 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 this same thing has happened with AI, by the way. Um, and I predicted this in in my book um, ten years ago. The um, the people in the university working on AI, and they have been since the '60s, and and you know there's all this cool theoretical stuff going on and so forth. But what happened was that within that 10 years, um, this just past 10 years, some of the techniques that people have been arguing over on the, in the ivory tower all this time uh, suddenly started actually working. And the, the, the one that's most famous right now offhand is the, is the deep learning neural nets. But, right. um, but I predicted this. Once some of the techniques start to work, all of a sudden, everybody will say, oh, my God, we're going to miss the boat, and the money will pour in, and then progress accelerates. Right. And, that's exactly and, and we see that happening with AI. I mean, everybody's right. in the AI well, business all of a sudden, happen. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you can, you, can just, you can just feel the electricity in the field. Um, right. Well, that would happen, that will happen with nanotech sometime in the next 20 years, probably in the next 10. Um, but... Uh, I mean, and and it's happened again and again in history. It, it happened in uh, the in the teens, um, exactly 100 years ago or 107 years ago, uh, with airplanes. All of a right. sudden, everybody you know suddenly went from saying, "Oh, all the all the best scientists say that heavier than air flying machines are impossible," to saying, "Oh my God, I got to get me one of those." Right. Um, right. And uh, and boom, you saw phenomenal progress in, in not very much time at all and uh, and this was well we got to turn we got to turn that corner because we got to get to the flying cars that's the yeah that's absolutely the <laughs> and we're going to have you back on when you get your flying car book out to discuss that but now it's time uh, for our <laughs> weekly geek out uh, josh i don't know if you know but uh, at the end of every week we always do a quick uh checking in on just kind of geek culture and i thought in your honor we would have a quick uh, round the horn uh, on on favorite flying cars from uh, from wherever from movies, uh, books, TV shows. Do you have an all time favorite fictional flying car? Fictional flying car. Well, I know about a lot of actual real ones. You probably don't realize, almost nobody does, and I didn't when I started writing the book, that there was a, a huge flurry of flying cars in the 1930s, and it turns out that um, they they came close to developing useful flying cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so my favorite um, flying car was a real one from the 1930s, and it was the, the, uh, the Pitcairn Model 39, I think. Um, and it was an autogyro that uh, could fold up and be driven on the street, parked in your garage, 
um, flew about as fast as an airplane, um, and uh, they sold it for $5,000. But unfortunately, it was first the Great Depression and then the uh, World War II. And, right. And all of the uh, resources that had anything to do, including all the engineers, had anything to do with, um, with flying got sucked into the war effort. Um, so they produced some really cool airplanes back then, but they were all aimed at, uh, at military uses. And the, uh, the Pitcairn, which was beautifully uh, engineered to be just the right um, compromise between abilities and the necessities of a private flying vehicle, um, right. just got dumped into the dustbin of history. Well, I, I think I had a the favorite the, one I would have to say it was the pit chair. It sounds it sounds awesome. Actually, it kind of sounds like my favorite, which which I'm going to pick is from. If you guys have ever heard of Spy Smasher, he was a he was a back of the book feature in Action Comics back in the day, back okay. when Superman was the was the lead guy. Anyway, he had a vehicle called the Gyro Sub, and it was a ah. it was a flying car. It was a gyro it was a gyroplane. There was also a car, and it was also a submarine. So Spy ah, Smasher was. Okay. Yeah. way ahead of the game with that. But it kind of actually kind of sounds like you're... Uh, well, you mentioned here. Superman. Do you realize that he was a knockoff? There was another uh, hero of the day who had a forces of solitude up in the, in the Arctic, and, uh, um, and you, you should probably know about him. This is good geeking right here, Josh. Of course, we know this because <laughs> we've, we've talked about this right. in another geek out. But, uh, it was Doc <laughs> Savage. Yeah, Doc That's Savage, right. absolutely. His name was Doc Clark. Savage. He was the man of bronze. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was, Doc yeah. Savage had a gyroplane. Oh, there you go. That's right. Yeah. He had the planes were actually quite the rage. Uh, uh, you remember the the movie? It happened one night with uh, Claudette Colbert and the, you know, the Clark Gable. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, well, uh, she's supposed to be getting married to this this high society guy, right? And the the marriage is being held on the lawn of their fancy estate and all this sort of stuff. The groom to be shows up in a gyroplane. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. great. How about you, Stephen? Favorite uh, flying car? Well, you know, I mean, um, you know, there's the obvious uh, uh, Back to the Future, right? Um, Everybody but, loves uh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, kind of, I've always been kind of partial to Fifth Element. Uh, fifth, uh, the Fifth Element. Fifth element. And it's, yeah. Uh, that's a whole fun. New York City full of flying cars. Uh, that's right. And uh, you know. Um, uh, that, that's a pretty great one. Uh, um, and 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 it uh, they did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, we're talking the late '90s, right, when that movie came out. Uh, yeah. Of, of uh, you know, so, so with some really basic CGI and just a lot of uh, other, using a lot of uh, uh, old school uh, uh, techniques uh, to to give us New York City full of flying cars. I, there you I, go. I thought they did did a fantastic job uh, in that with 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 the technology they had at the present at that time. Although years earlier, I think Ridley Scott did an even better job showing L.A. full of flying cars in uh, Blade Runner, right? That's Without true. CGI. He, he did it with uh, models and camera tricks and all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, you know what? We could go on talking about flying cars all night, but we are completely out of time. Josh, I can't tell you how fun it is having you back on the show. We're going to have to do this again very soon. Great. Thank you. And uh, best of luck to you on the book. We look forward to uh, actually having you back on when the, when the book is out and talking some more flying cars. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, thank you all for being with us. We will be back with three brand new shows next week. And until next time, live to see it. 